All right, welcome back to another episode of the Laravel Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Matt Stauffer. I got two guys joining me. Can you introduce yourselves? I am Jeffrey Way. And I'm Taylor Otwell. It's been a little while, but we're back with a little bit more to share. And if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the Laravel Nude po- News Podcast, <laughs> check out the Laravel Nude Podcast. Where That's Jacob a different, Bennett- we don't talk about that one quite as much. <laughs> That's the secret podcast. We're secret exploring podcast. new things. <laughs> <laughs> uh, check out the Laravel New po- News Podcast. Oh my gosh, every time now. News Podcast where Jacob Bennett and Michael Dorinda, Dorinda, um, basically be Australian and Illinoisian and tell you all the greatest and latest news that's going on with Laravel. So... Because they're covering that so well, we're going into off off the beaten track a little bit, talking about a few kind of broader topics. So what we did was we put out some uh, a request on the Twitter account and said, hey, folks, what do you want us to talk about? And we picked a couple interesting ones that we just wanted to... This is like the reader grab bag or whatever you call it on, uh, on your podcast, Jeffrey. So... Um, The first one at the top of the queue is something we hear about all the time, not just in this particular request, which is, can Laravel be used for big apps? And sometimes this comes in the same conversation of, well, you know, if you want to do enterprise, you should use this framework. Or if you just want to do a cute little thing, you use Laravel. You know, there's all these kind of like statements and, and perceptions that people have and make about this. So before we go anywhere else, I would I would ask, like, what what is... And do, do we know what is the definition of an enterprise app? Like if someone, someone, and, and again, trying to give as much grace as possible to the person who actually thinks there's a distinction. What's, what is, what makes an enterprise app? Is it, is it about lines of code? Is it about dependencies? Is it about security? Is it about traffic? Like what makes something a big app and or an enterprise app? Do you guys have a sense for that? I really don't. So I basically have the same question. From afar, I would just say an enterprise app is something I, I imagine that's really, really big. I, I don't know. It, it's an interesting distinction that people always make. I mean, for as long as I can remember, even back in the, the CodeIgniter days, you had this idea that CodeIgniter is for these sorts of hobby projects. Mm-hmm. But then if you're on the enterprise level, you're going to reach for Zend or you're going to reach for Symphony. And I feel like even after all those years, I can't quite figure out what specific features or functionality do they have that make them suitable for enterprise? Mm-hmm. And what would CodeIgniter not have? Or what does Laravel not have? Um, is it related to the fact that Zend has a big company behind it? And whereas with Laravel, you know, like everyone's just going to keep creating threads about what happens when Taylor dies. Is is that the kind of idea? <laughs> like this is open source. It's It's kind of rickety. You're not sure what the state of it is. You're not sure if it's going to be abandoned. And with the Zend, maybe if you have a big company behind it, maybe you can depend upon it more. I mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't know. I have the same question as everyone else. Yeah. I think most people mean lots of classes, I guess. Um, you know, lots of code, lots of lines of code. And I think that the answer is, you know, obviously I'm going to say, yes, it can be used for big apps. One, because it has been used for big apps in the past. So we already know it's it's true, basically. But then also I think that you know, Laravel is good for any app that PHP is uh, good for. So Laravel gives you a good routing system and a way to route requests to classes. And sort of beyond that is really up to you. You know, once you're past the controller, you basically have total freedom to do whatever you want to do. So it's up to you in terms of if your app is going to be scalable in terms of complexity. Um, And also, I think Laravel is kind of uniquely qualified and better at making big apps than other PHP offerings right now for a few reasons. One, because when people start talking about big apps, a lot of times there's dependency complexity um, and Laravel's dependency injection container is really good and it's really thoroughly baked in throughout the entire framework. When you talk about complicated apps, a lot of times you're also talking about needs like background job pressing and or processing and Laravel has, you know, basically the only baked in queue system out of any major framework in PHP. Um, and then of course there's event broadcasting and other features that I would say are more kind of on the big app uh, side of things. So not only is it, can it be used for big apps? I think it's uniquely better for big apps than other alternatives out there in PHP right now for those reasons. And I think it's just a little misleading because it is easy to get started with and has a very simple starting point in the sense that it has a single routes file you can kind of jump into and start hacking around on. But it also scales up, you know, with your needs and with your team's needs in terms of complexity. So yeah, that's kind of my take on it. Um, Everyone kind of tends to think their app is a special snowflake, you know, that has these very unique requirements that have never been required in the history of web apps. But 
the vast majority of applications don't have unique requirements and they don't really have unique needs. And, you know, Laravel and many other frameworks really are going to be a good fit for them. But I think Laravel is the best option in PHP right now for a big, sophisticated application. And it's funny because for whatever reason, everyone thinks their project is going to be the one that really puts Laravel to the test yeah. in terms of how many how many, um, yep. how many many page views it can render in a single second, all that stuff. Like the, if you need to worry about that, you're at such a high level and you will know if you need to worry about that or not. But 90, I'd say 99% of projects will never even get close to that yep. point. So it's it's almost like... To be frank, it's almost like a sense of vanity that you think the project you're working on right now is something that really needs to worry about that because uh, you're probably not even close. Yeah. And we're assuming developers don't approach projects in a rational way, even though we think they might. Like mm-hmm. people cho- don't choose frameworks in a rational way. They don't choose anything really related to tech in a rational way. A lot of times, as surprising as that is, there's lots of things that go into it and some of it's just sort of personality things. Maybe they don't like the way that a certain framework is marketed or not marketed. You know, some people are very turned off by active marketing around open source. So um, maybe they don't like the style of Laravel sort of friendly, uh, hey, look how easy this is marketing. And they're turned off by that. And so they choose something that's more toned down, more sort of suit and tie like Zend because that fits their personality better. And it's not really a technical decision. It's more of just a, personality or subjective decision. And that happens a lot with tech in general. You know, some people don't use anything that's popular in general, just the kind of the classic hipster type thing. Uh, I think a lot goes into it and it rarely is it purely technical. Sometimes it's, they don't like me, you know, they don't like me personally. And so they don't like Laravel or use Laravel. I like you, Taylor. Um, it's funny, <laughs> right, right, right before we started recording, uh, I guess RailsConf is going on, and I was watching uh, DHH give his presentation live, and he was kind of talking about this to some extent, the the idea that it's important, even for a tool like Rails or Laravel, to have like their own culture and their own sense of values. And he was talking about how like a lot of people take this idea that you just learn all of the different languages, and then you do, you're a programmer, so if you need to work in this language, you, you do it, and you just apply everything over. And he was talking about how, like, while that's true, what's wrong with being part of a community that has a very specific culture, very specific views? Mm-hmm. He talked about, like, the, the people that are still using Rails are, are doing it, maybe not just because it's better, but because they agree with the values that Rails represents. That's, like, the huge reason why people still use it to this day. Uh, and I think that's very much true for Laravel as well. It's kind of an interesting way to think about things. It's all personality. It's about what your values are and what, what you connect with and what you don't connect with. Yeah, and I, when I first started Laravel, that was a big part of how I wanted, how I thought Laravel could be successful because I knew that in my own life, like there's sort of this ongoing desire to sort of connect with a group of people, some sort of community or whatever around shared values. And, you know, that can be found like a, around many different things like music or sports or religion or whatever. And I knew with programming, like I wanted to connect with this group of people that has similar values about writing really clean code and having a good time doing it and making it enjoyable and sort of interesting and new and fresh. And that's kind of how I presented Laravel. And I think resonated with, uh, with some people that were also looking for a group with those kinds of values. And that's still kind of the the values we obviously try to share today, but yeah, it wasn't necessarily a purely technical thing. It was building this group of people that sort of resonate around similar ideas and want to work on them together. It's interesting because uh, I think that even in my question, I conflated big and enterprise. And I think that you guys kind of really drew out the difference between the two in some of your answers. I mean, if we think about it, like uh, Jeffrey's first answer was, well, enterprise might be really interested in having a company back it versus a person. And like like Taylor said, we get the question of what if Taylor gets hit by a bus all the time? And and it makes sense, right? Like I, we have clients all the time come to us say, you know, well, our you know, the CEO or the the board or the CFO or the lawyers or whatever of our, you know, multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar company are, are very worried that we're going to invest a whole bunch of money and time into something and X. And it's not always, and then Taylor might get run over by a bus, but a lot of developers are getting non-developer input on the decisions they make here. And there's certain times where some IT person has set up some rule set that says, well, you can only use projects that this or only use projects than that. So I do wonder whether there's some constraints there. One of them being 
It must be owned by a company. I know that when we work with Craft CMS, a lot of people say, well, you know, why would, you know, there's actually a, a business value of using Craft CMS over something like WordPress because Craft is making money and therefore it's a sustainable business model. And therefore the, the business people are actually less worried about this thing disappearing. Right. So like a, maybe a, a more direct chain of profit to the people who are running the thing might actually make it clearer. And I don't know if that exists. Maybe ZenCon would be something like that. But I know there's a Lyricon too. I don't really know. Um, so but it's interesting that the requirements of like the true enterprise requirements, like because I work for a company, my company has these requirements. But I think people, including me, when I ask this question, conflate that with big. And and so I think that that, that is a good place to take this next is um Let's let's step away from the enterprise a little bit. Enterprise culture is a thing, and, and you know whatever. Let's talk about big. So the 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 thing that you mentioned, Taylor um, and Jeffrey, both is that a lot of people come along and say, "Oh well, mine's going to be the the one that finally pushes those bounds, right? I'm going to run into the traffic issues and stuff like that." So so first of all, like I know that we can't say a lot of the names of big sites that are running on it, but I I feel like is there anything we can do to kind of like just I mean, I know several of them because I'm under NDAs with several of them, you know, who've talked to us about doing some work with us. But there's like multi, I mean, millions and millions and millions and hundreds of millions of of, of page views sites running on Laravel. There's like Alexa top 500 sites running on Laravel. There's um, what's the, the big group of all the businesses in the US? Well, I can't remember the name of it. Fortune 500, there's Fortune 500 companies running on like multiple Fortune 500 con- companies whose websites are on Laravel. Like, like, is there, are there any things that you guys can share, like to say like, hey, look, this is a this is a proven thing. Like we've got big stuff running through here. I'm trying to think of some of them. I mean, it's like Vice Video launched one, you know, various video game sites like Fallout 4 had their landing page on Laravel, um, other stuff like that. But, you know, it sort of never seems to be enough. And I, it right. sort of becomes this treadmill of, you know, I have to give one more proof that it sort of can work. And I just wonder like what's really underlying the question. Like, do they want to know that if I build my big app on Laravel, will it be infinitely maintainable and clean? And no, Laravel won't automatically make your app amazing to maintain for 10 years. You know, that's, I don't know if it's like trying to sort of skirt responsibility for you also having to do a lot of effort to like make your app Hmm. enjoyable to maintain or what, but. It's a little yeah, confusing a bad to me. A bad programmer can write a bad app with with any framework, right? Like you're not nothing's going to rescue you from that. Not saying that the person asking is necessarily bad, but like, and I, I think that's a great point that you made earlier, Taylor. We should go further into is that with Laravel, like, yeah, okay, Laravel has its own conveniences, but at some point, every single app is basically just getting into you're just writing PHP, right? Like, yeah, and yeah. and especially at this level, when you're talking about hundreds of thousands of lines of code. Like the vast majority of the stuff that it's dependent there is going to be just PHP code, right? Like, yeah, once you get, let's just take like a Laravel app, Laravel new, whatever. Once you're at the controller method in your controller class, everything else is up to you. So whether you use the validator or whether you even use eloquent at all, or whether you use anything in Laravel is entirely up to you. So it was your choice to do whatever you did past that point. So it's not Laravel making you do any one particular thing. So that's sort of the point where you're going to have to, you know, turn your thinking cap on and really plan out how to do a big project. Because as far as the framework is concerned, the framework is going to be a much smaller concern than your actual code. You know, the framework is going to be routing session, some caching, some database calls, but you're the one that's going to have to like, figure out the domain problems of your app, which is going to be way more complicated, I think, than any framework problems you're going to have. Just how is this app going to work? How is it going to provide value for our customers or whatever? Those are all like much bigger questions, I think, than worrying Mm -hmm. about can Laravel be used for, quote, big apps? Well, one of the questions we got on Twitter was um, how to build big sites with Laravel, scaling, deployment, database structure, load balancing. So let's let's say someone's on board, right? Laravel, yes, Laravel can be used for big apps, period. It's good. Um, so what are some considerations that you'd have? So if you are taking, you know, a, a, a default app out of the box and you Laravel knew it and you build you some basic stuff and then someone says, all right, this app that you just built needs to be able to handle, uh, you know, a million hits a week uh, next month. What are the first things you would look to to start kind of hardening it against that kind of traffic? Uh, really simple things you could do is just make sure you're using um, a good cache or session driver. So probably want to use something like Memcached or Redis or something that you can centralize on 
one server on elastic cache if you're on aws or whatever um mm-hmm. you know you're also probably going to want to use a load balancer and php is really easy to deploy this way you know to put a load balancer up and to make a few php servers and alternate traffic between them uh php makes it really simple to do that kind of scaling um and then at the laravel level you know make sure you're using config cache make sure you're using the route cache um make sure you're doing composer dump autoload optimize you know really simple things you can do to sort of boost your application a little bit um jeffrey i know Laracast is pretty huge and you kind of are in there day in day out so i know you're super focused on making sure it's performant um especially related to maybe let's say uh databases and deployment can you give me any kind of tips that you have there for people who are building new kind of high traffic apps that you've learned from developing Laracasts? yeah Laracasts is is surprisingly high traffic uh, if you look at the numbers uh and i can tell you not doing that much. Uh, just to, to be perfectly frank, uh, beyond what, what Taylor said, a lot of that stuff is kind of the fundamentals of, of using config cache. Um, a lot of people just deploy and stick with the, the file-based uh, cache driver. Um, you obviously have some issues with that. But I'm not doing anything that, that fancy. Uh, a lot of it becomes basic stuff, like people completely ignoring the size of their images. Like That's mm-hmm. always the very first one I bring up, and it's such a 101 tip. But if you go from site to site, you can see it being uh, abused immensely. There's so many ways to work it into your build process, or, or if not, just dragging a bunch of images into like a Mac app. Um, I'm trying to think of the one I use. Is it Image Optim? Image Optim, yeah. Just like when you deploy, you can drag a bunch of images in there, and it will automatically optimize them as best as they can. And you would be shocked how much uh, how much benefit you can get from that versus people who just take a hundred k image and they throw it. Uh, into their into their project, you know it's funny. Like people will debate single quotes versus double quotes all day, and then throw a 200k image into their banner. And you know it's it just it makes no sense. People people are silly that way. I think another great thing to do is separate separate out your database from your web server. If you're building anything, mm-hmm. you know that you care about in like a real way, it can be good to do that. And it's sort of. If you don't do it from the start, it can be kind of, you know, scary to make the transition because now you've got to move your live database to another server. Mm-hmm. But there are tools out there to make it pretty easy. There's even free packages out there to make it pretty easy to back up your uh, database. So that's always been really nice uh, for me to have that on a separate server. So definitely if you're getting started, do that because it just makes it easier to do that scaling where if you want to add a second web server you don't have this sort of funky situation where you have one web server talking to another web server because it has your database and all that other stuff where now if you want to upgrade PHP, you've got to upgrade PHP on the same server that your live database is running on. Just scary situations like that, that that will help you avoid. Are you guys using a lot of um, caching on your common uh, eloquent queries? Yeah, I do quite a bit. I really don't on Forge. I wondered about Forge because with Forge, each each query is going to be unique per user right so versus w- with jeffrey where there might be like a page that lists out all of the episodes in this and you might have ten thousand people hit that same page with right. forge it's more ten thousand people each seeing a totally different list right yeah it is very dynamic the one thing i do cache is the list of invoices from stripe because that's a stripe api call we have to make so I, we do cache yeah, that me too um, but other than that i don't think i really do any caching so Jeffrey probably has more insight on that. Well, I have a lot of this stuff on the forum because the forum just gets hammered. You'd be surprised yeah. how popular that forum is. I won't be surprised because it shows up in the top results of everything. <laughs> I know. I do love finding my own forum when I'm Googling for my own ignorance. It's right. Like, oh, I'll go to my own website to figure out how to do something, which is a great feeling. Uh, mm-hmm. But I do have some queries related to the forum that are, that are pretty intense. A lot of like multiple joins, pulling in stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I do cache that. Uh, even somewhere, I cache them like 10 minutes at a time just to reduce the weight a little bit. Uh, yeah. I, I get a lot of use out of that stuff. And then, yeah, of course, the, the, the type of stuff that just doesn't change, like uh, categories or channels or, or, or like Taylor was bringing up, um, there's no reason not to, to cache those things. And yeah, especially the invoices is a great example. If you're making a network query every single time a page is hit, there's really no need to do that if it's going to mm-hmm. be the exact same results <laughs> every single time, give or take. Uh, a change or two. So those are, are, are obvious cases where you want to cache it uh, as long as you can. How do you bust your cache on Laracast? Whenever something cache bustable takes place, I guess. Okay, so but, like, I guess whenever a new category is added and stuff, you just if have a new a category is added, yeah, as part of that, I'll, I'll just manually bust the cache. Um, 
or no, I'll automatically bust the cache. In other areas, it happens so rarely that I just boot up PHP Artisan Tinker and do it myself, yeah. <laughs> which is uh, which is crappy. But um, no, anything more common like that, I'll just automate it as part of the wherever I update the the, the database. Um, we're working on an app right now that has varnish sitting in front of it. And so literally the code that's in the, the behind uh, our Skype window right now is me writing a job that just wipes the varnish cache either for the whole thing or for specific routes in response to us notifying that the change happens. And that's that's an interesting thing because the cache is outside of the Laravel app, but it's cached based on its routes. And so I have the ability to say, well, these particular changes are going to modify these routes and uh, build a, an intelligent job that kind of gets sent out anytime we need those things. So even even when it's not within the app, even when it's not your Laravel cache, there's still a lot of ability to kind of put some heavy caches on. Uh, and speaking of that kind of stuff, uh, cache busting, uh, use the version in mix uh, all the time. I mean, that's just because then you can throw varnish or whatever else and just do an infinite cache on your assets. Uh, and if, if y'all don't know what that is, essentially every single um, asset that get, gets built by mix now has like a random string appended to the end of the file name. And every time it's changed, it gets a new random string on it. And so you can set a forever expires on your JavaScript files, your CSS files, whatever else, because anytime it needs to change, it will actually be a different file name. And so your browser will get to re request it and then Varnish will get to re-request it or whatever your cache is. But on that note, actually, I've been thinking about that. Is there... Can you guys tell me any real reason why, when we're using versioning, the file name itself needs to change? Because you're using that mix helper function already to, to dynamically figure out what the version file is. So is there any reason why we can't just use a unique query string there? Or not a unique query string, but taking wh where we would change the file name to include mm. the version, we just include it as part of the query string. And then the file name always stays the same. I know that HTML5 boilerplate used to do just query strings and... I hadn't even thought about that, but that might be possible where the file's always the same, but your, um, what's that JSON file that has the, the manifest.json, right, maybe, manifest. maybe yeah. that just has the, the, the new, you, the, the new ID to pass. And it's really just like an auto incremented or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's for for anyone listening, when you version the file, it, it creates, it, it basically gets like a hash of the file that you just bundled up and then that gets included in the new file name. But every time you bundle, if that changes, you will never know what that file name is called in your HTML. So basically, you can use this mix helper function that Laravel provides that will dynamically read that JSON file, and it'll figure out, oh, you want this file? Well, here's the current hashed version, and we return that. But yeah, I've just been thinking lately, like, is it kind of dumb that we keep creating a new file when instead the mix manifest file could just have the relevant query string updated? So I'm, I, I Googled real quick, and there's a thing from Steve Souders, who is the guy who originated the 13 rules of um, uh, make your websites faster, whatever they were, the whole like, you know, less HTTP requests. And it's called revving file names, don't use query string. Uh, I, haven't, <laughs> okay. I haven't read it yet. Oh, high performance websites. I haven't read it yet, and it is nine years old. Um, I, my gut now that now that I'm seeing him talking about Squid, I've worked with Squid before, which is like a pretty old cache, but um. A lot of stuff that works for Squid also works for Cloudflare. So I'm guessing Cloudflare is either using Squid or adopted Squid's terminology. And I do think, and I also did a whole bunch of work with one of our clients who's writing um, custom varnish rules right now. And I do remember that stri stripping query strings um, is a thing that happens sometimes, and especially when it doesn't matter. For example, mm -hmm. in the case of assets, it is. I think it may be a thing that things do by default. So he's digging through here in Squid and proxies and stuff like that. I think basically what he's saying is your proxy administrator could go and and teach the proxy to care about query strings, but all of them ignore them by default. So okay. by choosing to use it with query strings, you're opening up a whole bunch of opportunities where it doesn't work the way the way you're expecting. I've been using Cloudflare quite a bit recently. Mm -hmm. The whole the whole Laravel website is behind Cloudflare heavy Cloudflare caching. That very few requests actually hit the the real server mainly because it's all static you know documentation but i'm a big fan of that especially when you're scaling out uh web servers if you're using you know some kind of cloudflare ssl or i think amazon has a similar ssl service now makes it so much easier to add a web server because you don't really have to think about uh your certificates as much you know putting a certificate on every server especially because since you can just use like a self-signed certificate if you're using the Cloudflare uh, Edge certificates. So that's something to look into and is free to get started with um, and has some nice features for scaling. 
I um, helped some folks at this thing called the Resistance Manual, which is a wiki wiki about basically all the sorry to be mildly political for a second, all the negative impacts of a Trump presidency of and how to kind of resist against those things. Um, and so they wanted to gather that information together. And I said, well, I can help. I'm a tech guy. And they're like, well, do you know, you know, MediaWiki, which is the open source platform behind things like uh, Wikipedia? And I said, no, but, I, you know, I can learn it. Turns out it's like really old school, janky procedural PHP. So I was like, yeah, I can handle this. But it's also just extremely dumb in terms of how it interacts with the database. And so when you're getting, you know, millions of hits like they were on day one, uh, we had like an eight core, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month um, DigitalOcean box. And it was still just tanking like a couple times a day that the caches were getting overflowed and all this wow. kind of stuff. And so I threw Cloudflare on it, hoping it would be magical. And the problem with that is it's not Cloudflare's fault is because Cloudflare or Squid or Varnish needs to have some kind of reasonable rules knowing when things have changed. And for anyone who's never dealt with them before, there's a sort of complicated, but hopefully not too complicated dance between your proxy and reading things like expires headers and e-tags and all that kind of stuff um, from your website. And so if you are gonna, if you throw something like Cloudflare or something like that on and it's not working the way you expect, the first thing to look at is both the expires headers and um, the, and the cache length headers that are coming off of your server pre-Cloudflare. And then also what that same response looks like when it's coming back after going through Cloudflare and Cloudflare or whoever else will add a couple other ones. Like, did it hit the cache or miss the cache? And what's the expires header, but what's the squid expires header? So there's a lot of headers that um, give you the ability when it just seems like it's not working the way you want and there's only like three configuration options in Cloudflare. Well, then what do you do? Go look at your headers, and I I bet that that uh, you know 15 minutes of googling about how Cloudflare headers work and Squid headers work, and then inspecting all your headers before and after they hit Cloudflare, and you'll be able to suss out the problem. All right, so um, we talked databases, we talked load balancing a little bit, deployment. So um, if anybody's not familiar with zero downtime deployment, just a quick introduction for how it works. Um, if you use deployment in something like Forge, the default response when you push something new to your GitHub branch is that it hits git pull, composer install, PHP artisan migrate or whatever. So your site could theoretically be down for seconds while that whole process runs. And so if you're worried about that, you can run PHP artisan down beforehand and PHP artisan up afterwards. So when it's down, instead of throwing an error, you just see like, a hey, this site is temporarily down kind of thing. But if you're in a circumstance where that's a problem, you might want to consider something like Capistrano style or Envoyer style zero downtime deploy. Um, look somewhere else for a much longer explanation, but essentially every time a new release comes out, it's cloned into a new directory. The whole installation is process is run there. And only once that's done, then the public directory that's getting served is symlinked to that new directory instead of the old one. So you end up with, you know, the last 10 releases, each is their own independent directories, and you can go back and roll back to a previous directory. And, and Taylor's service Envoyer is basically a really nice user interface in front of that. Um, so that, for me, has always been the easiest way to handle deploys um, in, a, in a high kind of pressure, high traffic, high load situation is just to use Envoy or Capstrano. Are there any other experiences y'all have had or tips or anything about how to handle deploys in high traffic se settings where you're really worried about, you know, those, those 15 seconds or whatever? Um, is there any other considerations we should be thinking about or anything? That's the extent of my experience. I haven't had anything that was more demanding than using Envoyer. Well, I'm sure there is, you know, for people that are deploying to thousands of servers. But for me, when I'm just deploying to four or five servers, Envoyer has been a pretty good bet. Um, yeah. And hopefully if you are deploying to a thousand sites, um, then you've got a server person who's doing that. You know, like we're talking DevOps for, develop, de DevOps for developers here, right? You know, like when you're running the minor server, when you're, you know, running a multi-billion dollar product. And, and these, the, the client I've been talking to where we're working with all this kind of Varnish stuff. I didn't set up Varnish, you know, my client set up Varnish and took care of all that stuff. And he just kind of asked me for input in this kind of stuff. Um, so I definitely would say like, there's definitely a limit at which, you know, uh, people often lament like how many responsibilities are put in the developer these days. I don't think we all have to be IT people ca capable of running servers for, you know, a, a 1000 server setup for some massive startup or something like that. But I think that like this whole, you know, how do I handle a thing big enough that 15 seconds of downtime while a, a migration and Composer install run. That, I think that's often within our purview. And I think something like Capistrano or um, Envoyer is, for me at least, it's been a good fix. The only situation I have not had to run into, which I've heard people ask about online, I want to see if you all have any experience there, is what if you do a rollout and it has a migration in it and then you need to roll back? Um, 
Is there an easy way to do the migrate rollback in an, an Envoy rollback command, or should you just go Envoy rollback SSH in and then do PHP artisan migrate rollback? Sort of my view on that recently, like over the past year, has been that you would just never roll back ever, and you would always roll. You would always go forward. So, because I don't know how you roll back without losing customer data. So it's it's a lot of times not really feasible to roll back. If you let's just pretend you could, then yes, there's no real easy way to do it in Envoy. You would just kind of have to SSH in and do PHP artisan rollback, like you said. But I think a lot of times, at least for like my own projects like Forge or Envoyer, I could never really guarantee that I wasn't losing data. So I think if at all possible, what I would try to do is write an entirely new migration that fixes whatever problem there is and deploy that and it would just migrate forward, you know, and I would never really try to go backwards. You found yourself in that accidental situation where you deployed something that shouldn't have. You'd then go PHP artisan down real quick, might run the, the, the fix, push it up and let it go through the deploy process and then PHP artisan up after that one deployed. Yeah, that's what I'd do. If it's, I mean, sometimes if it's, if it's low traffic and you feel pretty certain no one's messed with the new database schema, then probably you could just roll back, but. I would, I would just worry in Forge's case, since people are in it all day, I would lose data. So that's why I would, if at all possible, try to always go forward. Yeah, that makes sense. I've actually stopped I've actually stopped writing down methods in my migrations entirely uh, recently, now that it's optional. <laughs> I feel evil doing that. Like, I, I, I very much get the, the argument, but when I create a migration and I just ignore the down method, I feel like I'm just doing something wrong. So I'm still doing it right now. It's really mainly feasible in Laravel 5.5 because you have the new uh, DB fresh method or DB yeah, fresh nice. command, which mm-hmm. just totally drops all the tables without running any down methods. And I end up doing that manually on the, all the time anyway, because at least in development, off, the most often when I want to do refresh, it's be, it's often in context where I feel still feel comfortable modifying old migrations. Like basically the moment I've run a migration in prod, I'll never modify an old migration or the the moment there's somebody else working on the project with me, I'll never modify an old one unless I have to, it's just so important that I just say, Hey, you know what? Let's go refresh. But often when I'm, I'm just stubbing something out and I've got the, my first six migrations, I'll, I'll go back and hack those things over and over again. I don't need to add a migration that has a single alter in it when I can just go back and edit the thing. And in that context, often I change the migration and then I try to roll back. And sometimes I've changed it in such a way where the rollback doesn't work anymore. I renamed a right. table or something like that. So fresh is definitely going to be a, a, a breath of fresh air for me. I do wish there was maybe a way to consolidate things. Like when you have a project that's been going for a few years, you can end up in a situation where you your migrations folder is huge. You just yeah. have so many. And it's like every time you, you need to boot it up, you're running through all of those. And like you said, sometimes just the, the things you've done, it doesn't quite work anymore. You can't roll back. It would be nice sometimes if you could just have like a reboot, like a just consolidate all of this down to something very, very simple. We did uh, that with Karani. Um, I don't know if there's okay. a, there's a tool that we use that helps you generate um, our Laravel migrations from schema. And we, we did it soon after we had migrated from CodeIgniter to Laravel for our database access layer. Um, so the, the Karani is a CodeIgniter app where I eventually started bringing in Laravel components. And then now the actual core of the app is in Laravel. And there's just like a third of the app or the routes that are still on CodeIgniter that were slowly moving over. And once we got to the point where half of our migration, migrations were CodeIgniter and half of them were Laravel, it was just such a mess. So we found this tool, whatever it was, we exported the whole thing down to a single migration archived all the old ones and i mean we have them in git if we ever need them and now there's just one you know one date from where you just get this massive thing and then all of our migrations happen kind of from that date and for me i actually feel more free to do that when it's in production because the moments it's in production i have less concern about being able to spin it up through this very specific process because like if something's from two months ago i'm sure it already has been run in production and so i feel less worry about making sure the history of it still sticks around Right, right. All right. So the next question we have coming up is, uh, I would like to hear about how you all stay productive. And we've talked on and off at various times about what we use. I know we've got uh, so some Todoist love, and I know we've got some Wonderlist love. Um, I have some thoughts about calendars versus to-do lists. And I also saw something about Microsoft buying and potentially ruining Wonderlist. So what's, what, do you y'all, what do you all use and what happened with, to, uh, with uh, Wonderlist? Uh, to-do, to-do lists are dead now that Wonderlist is dead. Yeah. Uh, Wonder so what List, happened? Wonderlist was my preferred uh, to-do list. I just thought it looked pretty good. And uh, Microsoft bought them, I think, 
uh, that was actually a little while back that they bought them, but now they finally announced what they're actually doing with it. And it, they're basically shutting down uh, Wonderlist and turning it into Microsoft To Do, uh, which doesn't look a lot like the old Wonderlist and doesn't have some of the features of the old Wonderlist. But I, I mean, it looked okay, you know, it seemed fine. Um, so what I've done is migrated to Todoist uh, rather reluctantly, but it's working working out okay. <laughs> this cracks me. Isn't this funny? Like Wonderlist is going to be around for a very long time, but just yeah. the the idea yep. that they are shutting down, it's almost like you feel compelled. We've talked about this with other things too, where it's like you suddenly feel like, well, I need to migrate. We, we talked about <laughs> this with Sublime. Like if we found out tomorrow Sublime is dead in the water, but you can still use it as long as you want. Even though it would still work great, you would have this feeling like, well, I got to get over to Adam or I, I got to start moving on because this place is dead. Um, even though Wonderless is going to work for a long yeah, time. As soon as, soon as, list, as soon as this was announced, I basically deleted Wonderlist off my computer, <laughs> <laughs> which makes no sense, but it's so true. Well, I, I needed a new router and everyone told me to use the Apple routers because they're the best, but I had heard they were end of life. And I was like, no way, no way I'm going to throw my money that. And someone said, well, why does it matter? You know, you're going to buy a router and you're going to use it till you die. And I, it dies. And I said, I, I don't care. I'm going to buy something else because it just, I don't, I don't know. It's just like you're putting your energy and your effort after something that can't, you know, can only be around for so long. And you just want to, you want to be working with something that's going to last, I guess. Yeah. I'm still on Wonderlist right now. Um, I, I'm hearing... Uh, if you guys are familiar with Things, that was like the big to-do app years yeah. ago. Yeah. And then they've been working on Things 3, the third version, for years. It's 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 been so long that people joke about it. You know, it's almost like that that new version of, uh, what was it? There was um, some Duke Nukem game that had yeah, been in development. Duke Nukem Forever. Yes, for like 10 or 15 years, and it finally came out. It's looking like next month. Things three will be out, and okay. I'm hearing it's like the prettiest to do app ever made. I'm hearing really good things, so um, I was hoping to get in on the beta, but they skipped over me. So uh, I'll experience it in May, but I'm excited about it. So that's the next one. But you know what? Like I'm never happy with to do apps. I don't know why. It's it's kind of a weird addiction. It feels I like know none why. of them address basic need. Even like the Microsoft to do. Okay, your most basic need would be to like say. Go to the score. Go to the market on Thursday. You can't do that in Microsoft To Do. You have to manually like set the due date to Thursday, rather than just using human speech. Have you so, tried uh, Todoist? Todoist works that way. Uh, I think Wonderlist works that way. But now Microsoft oh, To Do okay, got it. doesn't yet do I that. lost that ability, right? Yeah. So it's so weird. Like every task app will have some things that are really great, and then other basic things that are completely missing mm -hmm. um, and have been trash. that way for years. So, so yeah. I, I, I always feel bad. I mean, I bought things. I Thankfully, I managed to skip. What was the thing everybody went to after things? Omni OmniFocus. I skipped OmniFocus, which is good because that's hundreds of dollars saved for me. Crazy, I've tried, right? Yeah, I've tried all these different things. And I finally figured out that there's a reason why I keep jumping from one to the other is because to it, for me, this is not true for everybody. And I think it might have to do with personality a little bit and industry a little bit and what your role is, whatever to-do lists are fundamentally flawed because they're not the way I approach the day and they're not the place my brain is. So I can force my brain into a new paradigm for even a week at a time, but I've never been able to stick with it. And it's not the app. I thought it was the app. I thought I just, once I get the right app, I will become a to-do list person. And I realized I'm not a to-do list person, so I can try every app and it could be perfect and I will still just stop using it because it's not what I think about. And what I discovered that I can use and then later found some articles talking about how I'm not the only person to come up with this that validated me was I put it on my calendar. And so if I need to do something, I put it on my calendar and then it gets done. And if I don't put it on my calendar, it doesn't get done. End of story. And my, it's so, so effective for me that my wife knows at this point that if she asks me to do something and I don't immediately pick up my phone and put it on my calendar, she knows it's not going to get done because it's, that's, that's how things happen. And so it's, it's amazing to me that <laughs> she literally, when she first started discovering this, she uh, sent, and she's not super technical, like she's smart. She just doesn't like computers all that much, but she knows how to use Google. And so she, uh, when she first discovered this, she sent me a calendar invite that is Matt Clean Toilet, and it is for for eight hours every Sunday. And so I will be on a screen <laughs> share because she's like, that's how I'm going to get you to clean the toilets, right? So I'll be in a screen share with a client, and I'll pull up my calendar to say, hey, when's a good time for us to have this meeting? And they'll be like, oh, Matt Clean Toilet, huh? <laughs> Takes you eight hours. <laughs> yep. 
But it's, but it's, the, so for me, my to-do list is my calendar and everyone kind of in the company knows that my calendar is completely full. And Dan actually has asked me to start marking those things as not busy. So Calendly, our, um, our appointment app will still allow people to book like clients to book times with me during that time. But like, essentially, if I need to get something done, like I, I need to uh, review a whole bunch of pull requests. Like Daniel, who works with me, literally just put a meeting invite on my calendar for tomorrow at 1030 and it says code review with Daniel. And literally after this podcast, there's an hour that says code review with Jameson because they know that that's how they get it. And there's 500 emails in my inbox and all these other things I have to do. But if it goes in the calendar, it gets done. So have you guys ever tried that? Does that sound like something that would click with you or no? I think it makes good sense for you because it sounds like your days are scheduled, like your day is full. Uh, my day isn't quite as much like do this with so-and-so. I don't have as many meetings. So most of my day is like, these are the things I want to get done. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether I do it at 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. So a, a to-do list works good for me. Um, but yeah, I can see how like if my day was very segmented and scheduled, that would make far more sense than than reaching for some to-do app. What yeah, about I you, wonder- Taylor? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, my days are usually pretty free form outside of this kind of standard schedule where I always do email and pull requests first thing in the morning. But then after that, lately, it's been, you know, it was work on Horizon. Now it's work on the thing that comes after Horizon. And that's pretty much the rest of the day, Ooh. you know, besides um, whatever Laracon stuff I have to do recently, which is more of a seasonal thing. You know, um, I got lunch all booked. That's done. But whatever we need, you know, furniture, catering or whatever. But yeah, then I pretty much just work on um, one thing throughout the day. So I don't really switch context like that a lot. But I was so despondent at the Wonderlist announcement that all Friday afternoon, I wrote a Chrome extension that when you open a new tab, it opens this custom to-do list that I wrote in Vue.js and you know HTML. And it uses the Chrome sync to sync it across my Chrome account to all my laptops or whatever. So every new tab has a to-do list. But even that, I was still not happy with it and deleted it that for that whole afternoon and went with Todoist. Anyway, but I'd forgotten about the Chrome extension thing. I need to open Every source developer it. has to make their own to-do, to-do list at some point in their lives. Yeah. That's interesting about the calendar, though. I've never... I want to get Calendly because it looks like a really cool app and, and try some more calendar stuff because I haven't really dug into that as much as I could. Yeah, I, I use BusyCal for my desktop app. Um, I know that I think I use Fantastic Cal on the phone or something. And a lot of people love that. The The thing that we like about Calendly is that um, it gives me a public link that syncs up to my um, my Google calendar. And so when we need to schedule things, like we're in the middle of hiring right now or with client meetings, I just send them to my Calendly link. Um, and I just say, go here and schedule a time with me. And it's synced up with my Google calendar and it shows them all the times. And I could say, go schedule a 60 minute meeting. And I give them the 60 minute meeting link or a five minute meeting, whatever. And you can put different rules around each. So I teach Calendly, when do I drop my son off at school? And when do I, you know, drive from my home office to my work office and all this kind of stuff so that it knows when I'm available. And then, you know, because we just wasted so much time between Dan and me trying to get our calendars in sync. So that's, that's what I love about Calendly. What really, what really sold you on BusyCal over like, you know, just Apple calendar or whatever? I wish I could tell you. I know that it handled multiple calendars better, um, but it's been so long since I made that choice that I, I couldn't even tell you. I know that Dan, my business partner, hates calendars more than any person I've ever met. And almost every time he complains about something, I'm like, well, yeah, you can do that in BusyCal. And he's like, I still use Apple calendar. So I know there's <laughs> things, <laughs> but I can't tell you what they are. So, all right. Um, so one last question before we go for the day. Um, Sahib asked, it would be nice to hear why you guys are programmers. Is it just something you love and enjoy? Is it just a way to put bread in the table? Is it passion? What is it that make you want to be programmers? I'll go first. Um, I fell into it. You know, I, I think we're being disingenuous if we don't say that to some extent, but Mm -hmm. uh, I, I know even from when I was a kid, I, I love the, the act of solving puzzles. Uh, I remember I had this Sherlock Holmes book, and it's one of those things where every single page is some little such and such happens, so somebody was murdered, and then Sherlock Holmes points to so and so and says, "You're the you're the person who did it." And the, the last sentence is always, "How did he know?" And uh, that was like my favorite book. I would go through it every day and try to figure out how did he figure out that this was the guy who who you know who robbed the bank or, or whatever it happened to be. Um, so between that or uh, I played guitar for over a decade and I went to school for that, it's all still the same thing of like trying to solve puzzles, trying to solve riddles, trying to figure out how to connect these things. Um, 
you may not know with the guitar, but the same thing is true, like puzzles and you start learning about shapes on the guitar and how to transpose this to this and how to um, play this scale in eight different ways. It's still like the same thing to me is figuring out how to solve these little puzzles. And so for programming, I feel like it's the perfect mix of all of that. Um, there, there needs to be some level of creativity involved for me to be interested in it. Um, I, I always worried I would end up in a job where uh, I just did the same monotonous thing every single day. And I would finish the day and then come back tomorrow, and I'm going to do the exact same thing all over again. Uh, so there needs to be some level of creativity there, which programming does amazingly well, or offers amazingly well. Although my mom would never know. She, I think she thinks I gave up on music and went to this like this boring computer job. And even when I explained to her, like, no, there's huge amounts of creativity in this. I don't think she quite makes the connection of of how that is. Uh, so, yeah, between the creativity and solving puzzles and and making things, um, it's a perfect mix for my, for my personality. I was always really into computers and uh, games and stuff growing up, so it was pretty natural for me to. I majored, you know, in IT in college, but I didn't really get exposed to the um, sort of the fun side of programming and open source stuff until after college when I started. Uh, poking around on side projects and stuff like that. So I did kind of fall into this side of programming, you know, where you're programming for fun and as a hobby and working on open source um, after I graduated. But I was always kind of interested in looking back sort of things that are similar to programming. So like into games like SimCity and stuff like that, where you're planning out, you know, your city and, and sort of a lot of the similar things that you do when you're building a big project or whatever, a big enterprise project, you know, lots of sort of planning and trying to get the just the right structure or whatever. So I was kind of always into that that thing and just sort of naturally followed that path later in life. Um, I, my brother and I started a bulletin board service out of our spare bedroom when we were in elementary or middle school or something like that. And he's three and a half years older than me and he's a little bit more kind of like intellectual than I am. So he learned how to code the thing. So he's like, well, why don't you be the designer? And that that kind of trend just kept up. When he learned how to make websites, he'd be like, well, I'm going to make websites and you be the designer. And so I kind of had this internalized idea that A, I was interested in tech, but B, I was the design mind. And the thing is, I'm not a very good designer. Like the only reason I kept getting into design is because I had like, I, I was creative. I was a musician and stuff, um, but also because my brother already had the programming skills down. And so he needed a designer, right? And so I think that I went off to college. By that point, I already had a job as a programmer. I already had my own clients doing, you know, front end web development and basic PHP, WordPress, that kind of stuff. But I was like, well, I need to become a better designer. So I went off to college for design and I just realized I'm not a designer. So I left and I went off and I did English and I work with people and I work for a nonprofit having thought, you know, like, oh, that's not my thing. And then I kind of did a turnaround when um, I left the nonprofit. My wife went back to school and I needed to pay the bills. Um, so it was, there's a little element of paying the bills. I was like, well, I know that web development pays well, so I'll go back to that and just discovered that I love web development. It is fulfilling and it is satisfying. It is creative. It is, it's using your brain in all these really interesting ways. Each one is a little bit the same, a little bit unique. Um, you know, there's all these really great things about it. I mean, remember one of the things that drove me nuts about my previous work, both in design and in working in nonprofit is there was no sense of like, whether you did a good job or not, there's no sense of when something's done. It's just very kind of vague and vacuous. And with this, it's like there's a defined challenge and you know when it's done and you know whether you did a good job or not. And I was just like, that was huge. That was so, so like foundationally helpful for me. Um, and so I think just kind of being able to approach it and realize that that those it, it is creative, but like it's creative and it is it is well defined. It is a little concrete. Um it's a challenge, all those things together, I think for me. And it turns out that it wasn't just a way to make money. And I, and I've also since discovered now that I run a company that I also have all the people aspects here, right? It's, it's about relationships. It's about communities. I mean, we've talked about that a lot in this episode and running a company is about hiring and company culture and all this kind of stuff. So I get to kind of, especially at the level of tech that I get to do day to day, whether it's open source or running a company, I feel like it's, it's all of the best together in one world. So Matt, how did, how did you go from taking on smaller projects when you went back to web development to suddenly running Titan? Like, how do yeah. you get there? What yeah. happened? Were you getting more projects than you could handle? It, the opposite. Um, I, I was, I had no work. I worked at a co-working space in Chicago and I'd only have about 10 hours a day, 15 hours a day filled because I didn't know anybody and I hadn't been doing anything in the industry for six years. So I 
said, well, you know what? When I worked for a nonprofit, there was this need I had. Um, and I still work for the nonprofit part-time at that point. So I just started building an app. And I had I'd, I'd built an app by hand while I worked for the nonprofit in PHP, and it was terrible. And then I was like, oh, I've heard about this framework thing. And so I tried building it in Cake PHP, and it was terrible. Um, and so those experiences matured me a little bit. And so by the time I was now kind of going solo as a developer, every every free moment I would have outside of the, you know, the contract work I had, I would go learn Codeigniter. You know, my buddy Matt had learned Expression Engine and said, hey, check out Codeigniter. I think you might like it. So I learned Codeigniter and I did all this work in Codeigniter and I built this whole app, which is Karani, the thing we're talking about today. Um, and I built Karani and I made it for myself and then my friends wanted it. And so then I made it for my friends and then it was costing me money to upkeep. So I learned how to charge them money. And Stripe was brand new at that point. So I almost went with Stripe, but I ended up going with Braintree. All this kind of stuff. So like I got into like big and software as a service app development through there. And then right at that same time, um, I was teaching my buddy all about modern web development, HTML5 boilerplate, all this kind of stuff after work one day. And this guy walks over, the one guy in my co-working space I'd never met who was always in this closed office. And he's like, are you a developer? Are you looking for work? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I need you. Would you consider working for me? And I played it all cool, but I was like, yes, please. I need work. I only have 10 hours of work a week right now. And it was Dan. And so uh. Dan and I worked together on this massive project for a year. And the client took six months to actually get the work ready for us. And he already had me booked and he already had me build. So he's like, why don't you just go learn, become the best possible developer you can. I'll throw you, you know, 30 hours a week of just my, you know, various projects. Um, but in all your free time and even in those projects, just learn to become the absolute best. Because we were working for, you know, this massive billion dollar international company at that point, And responsive was like just a thought in people's minds. So I wrote, you know, articles and I created responsive libraries back in the early days of responsive and all this kind of stuff. Like I was like really up in the middle of it. And then we built this app. So I had like a lot of kind of things that took me very quickly from like, hey, I haven't written any code or any professional code in six years to like to the point where I was ready to build an app for this billion dollar company. So, and then it's amazing. It's how you learn best too. It really is. And and Dan and I loved working together so well that within six months, we decided to go into business together. And uh, six months or a year later, we named it Titan and you know, the rest is history. Um, so we're, we're super late and Jeffrey, you are the one who has to edit this all later. So I apologize for that. So, okay. Future Jeffrey editing this. I'm going to do you a favor, call it a day for now. So guys, it's been a ton of fun. Everyone who submitted questions to us on Twitter, the ones we didn't get to today, they're still on our Trello board. We'll um, we'll get to some of them next time. But keep sending us stuff uh, for us to talk about. And and like I said, the Laravel News Podcast is doing a fantastic job of keeping you up to date on a regular basis with news. So definitely tune in there for that. Um, but we're going to be talking about more long form stuff. So when you got questions for us, send them to us, either our personal accounts or the Twitter account uh, for the podcast. Uh, and we'll try to get to them when we can. So until next time, it's Laravel Podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>